August 24th, 2020. Blues are done. Fought back to get the series versus Vancouver tied at two games each. We're up 3-1 in Game 5, lost 4-3, and that last game was not pretty. Here's to a regular, full, healthy next season. Today's guest is corporate veteran-turned-restaurateur Harry Parker. Harry's been dishing his version of Cajun and seafood at his two Gulf Shore locations for more than 12 years now, and he's still as enthusiastic as he was when he started at more than 50 years old. And of course, we do talk about the Gator appetizers. Three years ago, 8-21-17, we drove down to Columbia and watched the total eclipse. Hopefully you had a chance to do that as well. Cricket started, it got cold. First one in St. Louis since 1442. Traffic after was bumper to bumper going west. We went east, took us about an hour longer to get home. Cousin Kyle was one of many who got engaged during the eclipse. Next one is 2505, and as Crash in Bull Durham says, think of me finally. Republican convention starring King Trump himself starts tonight. Stop, drop, and roll, folks. Three things you should if you have not. Number one, like we talked about last week, at least check out the convention speeches on YouTube. This time, the Reds. Number two, go Google Teddy Nadler. This week marks the 62nd anniversary of when the St. Louisan upped his career earnings on the TV show's $64,000 question to $264,000. Two hundred sixty-four thousand in nineteen fifty-eight would equal two point four million dollars today. However, he did estimate that eighty thousand of his two hundred sixty-four hundred thousand went to Uncle Sam. Okay, here's where I remind you to please subscribe if you have not. Just hit the subscribe button on the screen where you are listening to this. Helps me get in front of more ears. You can check out Henry St. Louis Seven episode on YouTube and subscribe there as well. OT with Oliver is what you Google for YouTube. Go check out Harry's and all the previous seven, such as Emo's, Drunken Fish, and Lemons Pollock from Lost Restaurants fame. They're all up there. Number three, you should if you have not, make yourself some gumbo. Sausage or shrimp, your choice. Don't skimp on the trinity of onions, bell peppers, and celery. Like fan of the show Jackie Smith said, take your time. A good gumbo is a six-packer. Still one of my favorite lines from his episode. All right, now for the star of today's episode, Harry Parker, owner and creator of Gulf Shores Restaurants. What a fun story. Successful businessman, turning to his passion at an older age. I was surprised to learn how he ended up in St. Louis and then in Edwardsville. He owns a special place in the St. Louis scene, as we talk about near the end, and he has endured with his own special trinity. Passion to win, care for his staff and customers, and most importantly, love of what he does. Here we go, Harry Parker. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. Hey, before we get started, you look good. <laughs> I'll tell you what. You see this gray, Dave? This is, uh, that's, that's coming because of, uh, of the uncertainty of the future. But, we are, but uh, I have a firm belief that with every problem, there's an opportunity. How rough has the last month been? It's been really rough for us, um, mainly from a standpoint of our, um, for my people. I have a lot of love for, for my employees, and the restaurant was doing very, very well. Both locations doing very, very well, which means that, um, that our servers were doing very well, and we also pay a, a very high wage for our, for our people in the kitchen. And when that kind of money for them goes away, and we're talking families now, I have some, we've been around now for, uh, for 15 years and so there's some kids that started with us when they were like 20 uh and now they're like 30 35 and they have families and they have kids and 
that said, uh, I knew that uh, just unemployment was not going to cut it for them because they were making a very good wage. So I think that was the roughest part uh, is to seeing them have to go with, with nothing. I mean, literally nothing overnight. That was tough for me. Government help you out? We did get some help. We did. Absolutely. We got some help uh, with various programs, uh, except in one location, our one location, Edwardsville, uh, that help was a bit late. So we had to, I had to make a choice of, uh, you know, uh, run one or lose two. So it did come along later for them, but uh, the government was, they, it was late, but it was in a situation like this, it's not a matter of, of, uh, of if it's late or not, it's just that it gets there and it got here. So Harry, as we catch up, I, I might've misheard you. Are you not in Edwardsville anymore or do you still have the two locations? No, we still have two locations. Uh, we shut Edwardsville down. Uh, uh, we just suspended service there, including takeout, you know, for, uh, you know, for, for almost, almost three months. Uh, and that, that really hurt because Edwardsville was contributing heavy to the bottom line in our, in our growth strategies. Uh, so, but now, no, we started it back up. It's running, it's doing well. We got our customers back at both locations. Uh, we, we, we discovered a new thing, which is called takeout. Now, we'd never focused that much on takeout before because we were also, we were always busy inside. So I never felt like it was right to have people wait an hour to eat and then wait another hour because the kitchen couldn't prepare their food because we were taking takeout. So I've never really focused on takeout. I always focused on taking care of the customer at hand. But now with this, we have rediscovered it. People are loving it. And it's a growth, that's the growth for us and how to do it right. But uh, Edwardsville is back and running and both locations are doing really well. So I'm a fan of Gulf Shores, have been for a while. Let's talk a little bit about Harry Parker. Mama's from New Orleans and your dad's from Mobile. Mobile, Alabama and New Orleans. That's correct. <laughs> and growing up, I'm not going to say those are too contrasting, but they're not the same. Yeah, they're not the same. But, you know, uh, if you go back in time, uh, those those uh, uh, those guys up in, uh, in, in Mobile had a fetish for those uh, those Creole girls. And so that's how my daddy met, you know, and uh, and, uh, and that's, how, that's where we ended up being in New Orleans for a while. I grew up most of my life uh, in, in Alabama. But the key, the key part of it was is that the cooking styles. I mean, I mean, you talk about the cultures meshing. Uh, my dad was a seafood kind of guy, you know. <clears throat> my mother was, well, all Creole, all Cajun. That's, that's what it did. If it didn't have the, if it didn't have the essential three, yeah, it wasn't eaten for her. And for those who don't know, the essential three is? Essential three is uh, bell peppers, uh, celery, and onions. Got any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I actually, I am the youngest. I am the youngest of five. Uh, my, uh, my brothers and siblings now mostly live in around the Carolinas. We recently, mom is 93, so we recently moved her uh, to North Carolina to be around uh, the, the, the rest of the brothers and sisters. But yeah, I'm, I'm the youngest one, and, and mom is still at 93, still trying to tell me how to cook, <laughs> and I'm 65. <laughs> and you gotta let her do that, right? Oh my God! I listen. <laughs> I may be 65 to you, but to mom, I'm three. Okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, what you're three? That'd be 36 months old. <laughs> exactly right. So she still asked me. And one of the one of the most funniest things that she said to me was like. When I told her about the restaurant and so forth, she says, I can't believe it. And I says, why? She said, because of all of my kids, you were the worst cook. <laughs> and I said, well, mom, I guess what? 
I got it right now. Maybe it just took me those years to get it right. So, so I still go there for some ideas. Some, when I really want to do something a little bit older, because her mind is still very sharp. As I said, she was living, still living alone until just about a year ago. Uh, she was still driving. And, uh, you know, so she, she's, she's leading a very, very good life, very healthy. We just what we just wanted to get her closer to uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, in the, during the current times. And where do your brothers and sisters live? Uh, in North Carolina, uh, right there in the Research Triangle Park. Uh, except, and then one of them lives a little bit further south, down around the uh, the Wilmington, uh, North Carolina coastline. Uh, so they're they're doing well, and but but none cooking. All of them said you can go do that, Harry. There's no way. But I didn't. I didn't start cooking either, though. But I ended up. I'm here now, and I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying. It. You a fan of Tobacco Row? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I have some. One of these days, I'll I'll even uh, bring in some uh, some of my North Carolina recipes. For my my father knows that North Carolina barbecue and then our barbecue sauces and all the things that they do a little bit different. Uh, it's amazing when you've had the opportunity to travel not only just locally and, and in the United States, but, you know, I lived abroad in, in Shanghai for four years. It's amazing how food, uh, every culture has their food and, uh, and, they, and they love it. I mean, you can, if you can get someone else to try it, they may love it, but uh, it's, it's, it's amazing what I've seen with regard to culture and food and how people just love it. Cause when you talk about the Carolinas on the barbecue, you're talking about the slaw on top and like a vinaigrette kind of a thing. Absolutely. Hey, you, hey, you must have been there. That's right. The slaw on top and it's a vinegar. It's a very much a vinegar based barbecue sauce. Uh, it's not so much tomato based as in uh, as in New Orleans and Alabama and even even here. Uh, but it's, it has a vinegar base to it. And, you know, and, and either you love it or you don't. But I, I sort of I sort of, I've sort of grown fond of it. I had to get used to putting my coleslaw on top of my my chopped barbecue. Uh, but I got to tell you, man, when you try it, it's really good. It's really good. You went to North Carolina State, correct? Yep. I went to, uh, I actually, I got to North Carolina State. I got recruited to play football and uh, at North Carolina State. But uh, when I got there, uh, and, and matter of fact, that was with Lou Holtz. Uh, and by, in about my second year, I was big, Dave. I was a big guy, but I wasn't very fast at all, okay? And I have a son just like that. God bless his soul. Uh, and uh, the thing that I learned and my brother, who uh, who uh, had an opportunity to play a, a year of professional football, said to me, because uh, I was also majoring in mechanical engineering, and he said, look, young brother, he says, you're not going to play pro football. You know, I know you have all this desire and energy. He says, but go the engineering route. And that's what I did. So I only played football for one year, and then I, I focused on my on my mechanical engineering, which is where I graduated. You a David Thompson fan? I am a David Thompson fan, and I tell you, I didn't miss any of those games. Uh, you know, I came there in '72. Uh, Thompson was there, and uh, uh, Thompson was there, and with Monty Tao and Tom Burleson and and all of them, Phil Spence, Mo Rivers. Uh, yeah, I'm, I've always been a diehard sports fan. And NC State back in the day, in the David Thompson era, I mean, that was that was unbelievable. So, fortunately, on the podcast, we've had the opportunity to interview and talk with a lot of people that own restaurants and restaurant tours. I don't think I've ever talked to somebody who owns a restaurant who went to the Wharton business school. <laughs> well, you know, listen, I've always been about trying to be successful. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, the engineering part uh, where I got my, went to uh, and got my degree from state, 
And then going to Wharton to get my MBA was a little bit of icing on the top because I really wanted to, I've always had this feeling is that if you're going to go in, go in to win. And I, uh, I knew I wasn't going to be the typical engineer that would you know, work at my desk. I have a fetish for people. I love people. And so in getting that degree, I thought it would put me over on the sales side, which it did. And so all of that was in my plan uh, to, to try to, to go to the top and be there. And I did. I mean, I, I only worked for the DuPont company. Uh, but when I left there, I, I left there as a senior vice president, and I had all the sales and marketing. I ran several of their businesses as a vice president and general manager. So I had an outstanding career. And NC State, Wharton, and the drive to, to, to do well was, was it. For people who don't know, and most probably do, the Wharton Business School, it's like number one. I mean, it's Trump, it's Warren Buffett, it's Elon Musk. Uh, do you go to school with anybody that I know? Uh, no. Uh, uh, no, I mean, you might know those names, but they wasn't there uh, when, when I was there, because uh, I was there in the, in the, in the, uh, in the late 70s, uh, 76, 77, 78. So, no, no, but, uh, but I, you know, I was in and out of there in like a, a year and a half, almost two years. Uh, uh, so, I, I don't think so. 28 years at DuPont. What did you learn there? Uh, well, I tell you what, I, I, I learned standards for the first thing. Uh, DuPont was a, DuPont was a company that was very, very big on safety. They had a mindset that it was their responsibility to send people back home to their families as they came in. And they, and they took that strong commitment. Uh, I remember once and the thing that stayed with me about the DuPont company, which was drilled into me was that every accident could be prevented. And I went like, you know, maybe that's, that's not logical because some things just happen. No. And they created this thing called a safety train, a safety tree where if you look at it and you study, you saw that accident could have been prevented. So I, throughout the years and through my 28 years, the thing that is instilled in me is that every accident could be prevented. And that company got to be great based on that. And I was a part of that. And I, I brought that into. So, and the other thing that I learned from the DuPont company was that, you know, there is a process to winning. And once you understand that process, it's just a matter of do you want to win or not? So those two things I learned from the DuPont company, uh, and, I, and I was grateful that and I knew that I would never, when I decided that, you know, it was time for me to reinvent myself to go follow my dream and my passion, I knew that uh, I would never work for another company because I, I couldn't see how another company could have that kind of drive around people, around safety, and around winning. It was a, it's a very, very great company, DuPont company. Harry, how do you get a 19-year-old dishwasher to buy into that? Well, one thing is this, you know, I think that people talk a lot, you know, Dave, about what uh, working mothers and, and single fathers and kids uh, talk about what it's cost us. I think the biggest thing that maybe that both parents having to work for the lifestyle they want, single fathers, single mothers, I think the biggest thing that's cost us is role models. Okay. And I found out that in my now uh, 16 years in the restaurant business, it's not that people don't want to do is that they don't know how to do. So my drive and, and how I wanted to establish this brand was I had to accept the role that I was going to be a role model for these kids. I couldn't just tell them what to do and figure they would know how to do it. I actually had to show them. And so that turned me into a, a sort of a hands-on, a hands-on kind of a leader, a hands-on kind of owner. And I have a lot of respect for them because, but once I showed them, then I expect them to do that. But because so few kids have had anybody to actually show them what good customer service is like, 
to show them the importance of being the best dishwasher. They just kind of poo-poo the idea. But once they knew, I mean, I have some kids that I think that, I mean, they have a lot of respect for me. They have a lot of respect for the brand. And they have a lot of respect for themselves because that's the one thing is that unless they have that role model, they really don't know how to respect themselves. I think I know the answer to this question. Ever kept somebody on who was a horrible employee, but you were thinking long-term? Uh, I do for a while. I, I do for a while. But, you know, you have to understand that the, the whole concept of teamwork. Uh, let me, I, I want to, just for a minute, I think that one of the biggest, one of the, maybe not the biggest issue, but an issue that the restaurants have is the restaurant owners. I think that restaurant owners, uh, they, just have, they just have a lot of power. I mean, in corporate America, there's stuff that's called due process. You have to allow people that. I could be angry with you. I could come in. I could talk to you. But I can't fire you. I mean, there's due process. I mean, you get to have your day in court. You know, because I might have been in a bad mood. You may, you may have been in a bad mood. And it may have cost us that. But the thing that I found out is that in, corporate, in, uh, in the restaurant business, I can come in having a bad day. It can be hearsay. It doesn't even have to be truth. But if, if it's what's in my mind, I can come in and you're having a bad day. And I can say, Dave, you go home. But don't you ever come back again. That's too much power. That's too much of a loss to a restaurant that really wants to do well for a talent. So what I do is that, number one, I never, I never discharge while I'm upset. There's always due diligence and so forth. There's always time. There's always documented information so I can show folks what they did or did not do. But then I let them go because I had this notion, there's too many other kids that would love to have the opportunity that you have. Uh, and so I have, but you know, and, and, some, and I've even brought people back. I mean, I've fired some people and they've come back and they've said, listen, I, I, I messed up. I really want to be a part of this team. I see what you're talking about now. So, uh, you know, yeah, I've hired, man, quite a few people that I had to let go, had a good work ethic, but a bad attitude because attitude has a lot to do with what the winning restaurant, they contact shining stars for me. I don't know if you remember, but I got a cousin, Joe, Joe Goins, who worked for you. And one of the uh, things. Of course. Yeah. He loved working for you. It was like yeah. um, a life lesson. You rewarded good. You pointed out not as good. And then you let them continue on. And I don't want to put words in Joe's mouth, but I'm thinking he's like 23, 24 I mean, he really kind of matured through working at Gulf Shores. He did, and, and his growth was his growth was phenomenal. Uh, but but you know, like you said, uh, I just thought it was listen. People going to have some respect for you because every restaurant owner gets respect because of having the ability or the capability to go out and, and invest the money for a restaurant. You're going to get some respect, okay? So you start out that way, and it's, and it's up to the restaurant owner to maintain that or lose it. And so I think that some restaurant owners forget that every day I had a motto uh, in, in the restaurant business and I would tell all of my restaurant people, listen, I can't have a bad day with you. And I say, and I'd ask the question, have you ever seen me in a bad movie? They go, hmm, come and think of we had, it doesn't mean I haven't had a bad day, but I can't have a bad day with you and you can't have a bad day with my customer. You cannot. So if a customer is in a bad mood, it's your responsibility to put them in a good mood. And they saw me on the floor working and they saw how and sometimes how some customers not realizing who I who I was, but even when they knew how they would why do you let them talk to you like that? I go, because listen, this is not about a short term break. This is running long term. We we, we have to win it. 
And I think on some of the kids, particularly Joe, they saw it and they saw that how you carried yourself, what you said, how you reacted meant a lot more uh, to everyone around you than you can ever imagine. So let's backtrack a little bit. You're in Shanghai. Uh, your dad's not feeling well. Right. You're making six figures at DuPont. And you say, I want to own a restaurant. <laughs> what the heck, man? <laughs> I tell you, man, I said to uh, I think in, in every job, there comes a time when you want to reinvent yourself. I think in every life, there comes a time when you should follow your passion. Okay. And even though at the time I was 52, 53, and I said in my, my career with DuPont, I, I think I relocated at least a dozen times. But I never really had a lot of time to spend around my dad at all. And so when my dad, uh, we found out that he had terminal cancer. He was a smoker his whole life. Uh, he had lung cancer. And they said that he was going to live from not even six or seven months. I decided, you know what, I'm going to go. So I took a leave of absence and I went and I spent time with dad. And the way we passed time was writing writing recipes, writing his recipes, writing mom recipes. And then while I was there, I said, you know what? There is a time that my passion was cooking. I, I saw that again uh, when I got home because I was cooking for him and cooking what he was telling me to cook and, and mom and so forth. And I said, you know what? You know, I really do have a passion for this. And I realized I never, ever really had a passion for the corporate world. Uh, you, you don't have to have a passion for some things if you want to survive. And the corporate world was more about surviving. So I said, well, what about if I could not only survive, but thrive in an environment that I would really, that I would really enjoy and have a passion for? And I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. My wife thought I was crazy. <laughs> she said, wait a minute. What, what, what? You're going to invest, you're going to invest to do this? And I said, yeah, because we knew with no experience in the restaurant business and eight out of 10 restaurants failing, we knew that I wasn't going to get the loan to build the kind of restaurant that you saw over in Creve Corps. So it meant me having to take some of my 401k and roll it into my passion. And that's what I did. And she stuck with me. And, and now today she's happy. But I got to tell you what, that first year, I thought I was going to be single because it was not happening. <laughs> <laughs> you took that money. And then in about year two, when, you know, when the kids began to see and everybody began to see what it was, and they began to sample the food and they began to see the kind of, uh, the environment, the whole concept that I really wanted to to uh, to convey, uh, and we we just been rolling since then. Your recipes at both Gulf Shore restaurants, low salt, no butter. Right, because my, that's where my mother cooked. Uh, my mother taught all of the boys how to blend spices. <clears throat> and my father, you know, who was I mean, my father who not only had high blood pressure, he was also he was also a diabetic. And my mother used to blend spices for him. And she would not blend in. She would blend out the salt. She would, she would try to blend out the salt. And she would also do the thing with the same thing with the, with the butter and, and so forth. And, and she would try to uh, either blacken things or, and let them cook from their own oil, the oil that's inside of the, uh, inside of the protein. Or she would bake and brawl and so forth. And every now and then she would get them fried because he had to have it. I mean, he was a Southern man. Now, okay, he had to have his fried. But... Uh, for the most part, she did a really good job. And I, and I learned a lot from that because I saw that most of the salad dressings, most of the batters, most of the things like that, they were just loaded with either salt, sugar, or preservatives. And I didn't want to have that. So what we did is that, you know, we decided, I decided to, to blend our spices and give everybody a little head fake. 90% of the time when you're dining and something is bland, the closest thing is the salt. So you reach for the salt. 
What about if 90% of the time something was bland, you know what, you reach for a blend of Cajun spices, which not which were uh, spices, which were not salty. That was a drive towards making everything. It costs us more to do it, but I tell you what, it brings out all the, the natural flavors uh, uh, of, of the protein, of the fish, and of the seafood. I thought a couple of times about taking salt off the table, but I, my, my wife convinced me that you're going too far now, honey, so just, just chill. The brains of the operation. That's exactly, yeah, the motivator of the, of the operations, I tell you, you know. Here's something that'll blow my kids' mind, kids' minds. When you went out to work in the restaurant business, you worked for free. I did, I did. I, listen, the thing that uh, DuPont taught me uh, was that, you know, you have to know some of what you're doing. And I think that sometimes what happens is that people get their passions confused with understanding what is business to win. I mean, I think that's the reason why there's so many restaurant owners who have a passion for cooking go into it and they, and they don't win because they didn't understand what makes that business successful, what I call the foundation of the business, you know, the numbers part. A lot, I think a lot of restaurant owners don't understand. So I knew business, but I didn't know the restaurant. So what I did is that I gave myself up as free labor because I was out. My father had passed away and everything, and I was getting this thing ready. So I gave myself as free labor for almost a year to understand the restaurant business. I mean, what restaurant owner, if you go to them and say, hey, listen, I want to come work for you for free. And that's what I did. I did it with two different restaurants. Uh, one was Joey's. And I went in there, and I, I understood what I, I understood a lot of things on what to do, but I also understood and confirmed a lot of things on what not to do because you have to understand the business side of anything. And I tell everyone, do you really understand the business? Because I talk to and try to mentor as many people as I can. And they say, no. I said, well, give yourself a free labor. What do you mean? Let's go to that company and say, listen, I would like to work here and I'd like to work here for three months for free. And I'll guarantee you, you'll have the opportunity and you can learn what makes that business go. You can also sure. learn what's making it fail. So let's backtrack for a second. Okay. You're a graduate of the Wharton Business School mm -hmm. and you're washing dishes and you're talking to somebody who's the owner, the boss, and you, mm -hmm. you're thinking, and you got to be thinking in the back of your head, man, you are so not doing <laughs> this right. <laughs> oh my God, that is so funny because I got to tell you what, there's so many times, you know, but listen, when that, you know, uh, the other thing you learn how to do in this business is you learn how to humble yourself, okay? Uh, the customer may not always be right, but the customer has a right to express his opinion. Uh, and I, so I, I think that is, I saw so many owners that I, I just shook my head and just said, I know this thing is not going to fail. As a matter of fact, a couple of times I said, I hope I get an opportunity to complete my commitment for, for, for the next two months because I don't think they're going to be around. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> That's part of it. I mean, you know, learning how to humble yourself, that was a good exercise in that, is also very important. And if you want to win, remember, I said, I have a fine belief is that if you understand the formula of winning and you're not winning, you know what, then that's up to you. Because the question gets down to, do you want to win or not? You know the formula, you know what you need to do. Do you want to win or not? Well, I don't get up every day to, to, uh, to end up being second. I don't end, get up every day to just, you know, throw caution to win. I get up every day for me to win, and I know that in order for me to win, my team has to win. So I, I believe in winning in a big way. Explain to me what life or death metrics means. Oh, my God. Um, there's, in, in every business, there's two to three uh, 
metrics that you need to understand that will make that business go, okay? And the restaurant business, your food costs, uh, your labor costs, okay? And I call and the quality of the quality of your food. Those are the metrics, okay? And you need to learn those. You need to track those. You need to understand it, okay? Because if you don't understand it, you don't know when you're losing a lot. Okay? You don't know at all. And so how you price your food versus what you pay for it is a critical metric, okay? Because if you're not covering, you, you can think you're just making money and you're not. So those life or death metrics are the ones that's going to make your business thrive or die. And, and I, I tell you, in the restaurant business, it, it's, a, it's such, a, such a fine line. And I've learned that because I've seen some what I thought were good restaurants uh, eating. And so when, I, when I'm sitting with you and you're having dinner at my restaurant and you're saying, Harry, I really enjoy these shrimp. I'm thinking what I'm looking at your plate, I'm seeing 18 cent, 45 cent, 65 cent, 80 cent. Going, okay, here's a plate. Here's my plate cost. And guess what I'm making? And I'm really happy because I know I just made a profit on that plate. A lot of restaurant owners don't understand their food costs. They don't understand their labor costs. They don't even know what uh, when they're failing and losing. You have to have a certain uh, metric that you're looking at or uh, a barrier to say, listen, my labor cost is here. I can't, I can't survive like this. So unfortunately, I got to do something different. Has COVID added a metric? Yeah, I think that one, one COVID, one, one metric that, uh, uh, that COVID is adding is, is uh, the one on flexibility. The one to be able to, uh, I've always had a feeling that uh, in every problem, there's an opportunity. And, and uh, so you have, to, you have to have something else that you can go to and move to very easily. The metric that COVID added to me was the belief in flexibility. And the belief that, uh, uh, and you have to have a way to be able to move from one thing to the other. I'll give you one example that COVID taught me. In our business, uh, I have always believed that because we've always operated on a way. And so I've always believed that uh, I never had did online ordering. I never did. I didn't do any at all. Okay. Because I felt like that when people come to the restaurant, my customers come and they wait an hour to eat. It was totally unfair for me to, uh, have them wait another hour because I was doing all these to-go orders. So I never focused on it. I never understood how to really run a very good takeout uh, curbside business. Never. And uh, it caught us. And it was, it was one of the hardest transitions because people still wanted the food. We had no way to, to check the quality of it. We had, no, we had no metrics or systems to be able to understand how to pack it, how to do and everything. And that caught us and it hurt us bad because you know, we got some pretty hard licks. Uh, one of the things I do is I read all, every single review that's written about Gulf Shores Restaurant and Grill. I read and I respond. Every single one. I'm sure that's in the thousands by now. So we took some hard licks uh, because we did not know how to do that. Hindsight says I could have limited this, that business to maybe 4 or 5%. I could have done both and then it been an easier transition. So I think business flexibility is a new metric that I have, which is why I've invested in this, uh, this catering, uh, what I call this mobile kitchen. We have to have the flexibility of something that can carry one part of the business while the other part is struggling. Talk more about that. Well, one of the things that, that we did is that, um, I, I told you the part, just mentioned the part about having the flexibility, but I've also said that the way this thing is going to impact, everybody calls it a new normal, is that people are going to, they're going to look to have some of those events you know, in their home or at, a, at another site and not going into a, a habit in a place that they feel is a safer environment. I don't, I don't think that's going to ever go away. I think it's going to be there. 
So what I did is I invested in a mobile kitchen. Now, a lot of people say it's a food truck, but it's not a food truck because you're not going to see us sitting out on the street, but it's a mobile kitchen. It's a totally outfitted steamers, fryers, everything that when you say, listen, I have 15 people, or at least 20, because we have to have at least 20 people, and they're going to be coming here to, to dine with me. And I said, okay, then we'll come to your location and we will cook it on the spot. We will steam your crab legs. We will make your boil. We'll do your crawfish. We'll do it on the spot. Or your fried food, because food does not travel well. Fried food doesn't travel well. We will fry your, we'll fry your crab cakes. We will fry whatever you want. We'll do your shrimp. We'll do it on the spot. And so that concept is one I think that, I mean, I've already, I mean, listen, we have more opportunities now to do that than I can imagine. Uh, but we, we're doing, we're going to do it very, very well. Now, what that does for us, it, it gives us that flexibility that when that business inside is hurting, we can bring it to your location and do it every bit as well as if you were dining in the restaurant. Where were you living before opening up Gulf Shores? Uh, before I opened up Gulf Shores, I was actually, I came straight from Shanghai. <laughs> and so when I came straight from Shanghai, I had a restaurant location company. I went back into North Carolina and was staying with my brother. Uh, uh, and I decided when I came back to Shanghai, I did that. And uh, I decided I hired a restaurant location company to say, I have this concept. Where is the best place for this concept? I don't want to be too far away from my mother because I've spent 28 years being away from family. And they said the best place is St. Louis, Missouri. And, and when I, they yeah. said that, did you go, uh, check again? <laughs> That's why I said, what? St. Louis, Missouri? That's Midwest. And they said, well, let, 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 let us tell you about Because these are, these are the companies, these uh, restaurant location companies are the companies that allow the change. You, you can see sometimes you see something happening before you know there's this change to already there ahead of everything. That's because they look at, they believe in, they look at data, they look at demographics, they look at growth patterns and so forth. And they said, no, no, here, here's a couple of things. They said the, the largest, the second largest celebration of Mardi Gras outside of, uh, uh, outside of New Orleans, a place called Soulard. I went like, okay, okay. I, I didn't know that. I'd never, look, I'd never been to St. Louis. And they also said that also they have a fetish. They have a fetish for Cajun food. But, you know, they also don't have as many uh, Cajun restaurants. And I also told them I was going to name it Gulf Shores Restaurant and Grill because I was thinking Gulf Coast. I was not, I wasn't necessarily thinking about the Gulf Shores, Alabama. I was thinking about, and they said also the number one vacation spot within driving distance of St. Louis is Gulf Shores, Alabama. Well, I knew Gulf Shores, Alabama, but I didn't know that demographic. So that sounded good to me. So I said to my wife, I said, listen, we're moving to St. Louis. <laughs> she didn't mind. Yeah, we've, we've already moved 13, 14 times uh, because I really wanted to have the, I really wanted to have the greatest chances of success. And so we came here and, uh, and, uh, in 2004 and we made St. Louis our home. What at O'Fallon, Missouri, we made O'Fallon our home. And uh, that's it. That's how I got to come to, that's how I got to be in St. Louis. Then eight years later, the same company says, go to Edwardsville, young man. That's right. I tell you what, they, I said, listen, you guys did this really, really well. And so where should we go? And they said, go to Edwardsville. But the interesting thing about the information at Edwardsville, they said, listen, Edwardsville, the Edwardsville that you see five years ago is not going to be the Edwardsville that's coming. The growth is coming. More and more kids from SIU are staying there. The business foundation comes. So they said, you need to be ready to, to kind of roll with that because it's not going to happen overnight. 
And I said, that's fine because Creed Quote was well established. My business philosophy is that you don't invest in one thing until the, uh, the first thing you invest in is doing well. Creed Quote was doing very well. So I knew we would not have to have that income, uh, that contribution from Edwardsville. And so that's why we made our second choice, Edwardsville. So Harry, having a good time before it. I start every interview. I have like two or three questions in my head that I know I'm going to ask. For your Creve Corps location, where did the Blues Brothers come from? Well, I remember I said I really wanted to have, I really wanted people to have, see the very best of New Orleans, okay? If you've ever been down to B.B. King's uh, in New Orleans, when you're uh-huh. going and when you go in, well, you've seen those Blues Brothers, the two right. of them right at the, well, I said, you know, I, I got it. I have to do that. If I'm going to bring the very best of New Orleans, and the music and so forth. I have to do that. It took me. It took me a while to find those. By the way, I had to shop a lot of antique shops and so forth because you can't just buy those. And I just swell in. And the other thing too is, I, as uh, I think that your restaurant, your restaurant has to be a conversation piece. You know, you have to showcase something. I think that if I could tell you the number of people that I see before they come in that restaurant or on their way out, take a picture of the of uh, with the Blues Brothers. Yeah, that is that. That's marketing. Now, now you back into my. Now you back into what I know and understand. That's marketing. Uh, that's 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 mind space. Uh, those are the kind of things that people remember. And, and that's also when you look at on our on our caddies. Uh, you, you see what we have: slap your mama, punch your daddy. Those kind of seasonings and so forth are there, and people people love it. It's catchy, and it's mind space. It's advertising. You're promoting your brand, and I really want to. That's what I always think about doing every single day. If forced to choose gumbo or jambalaya? Gumbo. (laughs) (laughs) And and the reason why is because jambalaya, you know, either you make it right or you don't. Gumbo, let me tell you, I mean, I saw so many different kinds. My mother's brother made a duck gumbo. And I, 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 matter of fact, I, I do it in a restaurant maybe four times a year. I mean, it is so good, but it's so different than the other gumbo. You know, you can't go wrong with gumbo. I mean, you can't. For every, there's as many recipes for gumbo in New Orleans as there are hairs on your head. And so I get an opportunity to really, you know, challenge my taste bud when I make my, make my mother's gumbo. When I hear you say that, um, I apologize, but I think of Forrest Gump. And yeah. you got this kind of shrimp and that yeah. kind of shrimp. And we do that too, you know. Like a, one of the other things that you know we do, Dave, in the restaurant is like a lot of people say, "Oh, it's too much fried," but they, no, it's have it your way. We tell people, and they say, "Well, they said, how would you like your shrimp fried? Said, what other way?" Well, we have coconut shrimp, we have barbecue shrimp, we have garlic shrimp, we have Cajun sauteed shrimp, and that's and then people start start thinking about the, the forest cup thing. But uh, I, I think that giving people, and we don't charge extra for doing that, giving people the opportunity. Uh, opportunity to have it their way which is very unusual in a restaurant is a big deal you're like a cajun burger king i mean we really are you really can you know just uh people come in some people come in they have their they have their fish blackened they have a cajun sauteed they have it baked you know and that's really good and we don't charge extra for doing that it's just a way that you it's just a way that people can say wow i really like that i have one customer one time he'll come in he'll have it he said, I want the Cajun sauteed. I can't. And, of course, we always get the question, like, with the shrimp, can I do them three different ways? Well, we can't do them three different ways, but we can do them two different ways. But uh, people love being able to come into a restaurant and have things the way they like to have it. And I think that's one of the things that too, much, too many restaurant owners, they say they don't have time. 
Uh, I think the second thing is, is that we sample crazy. We have a budget for sampling. I do it. And we have a budget around sampling where people come into the restaurant and we bring them out a sample of the soup. A lot of people don't know, because I said before, there's many recipes for gumbo. So we tell, we encourage them to take them out a sample of it. Or, tell, or even when they sit down, the first time, if I'm in the restaurant and you come in my restaurant for the first time and I say, I haven't seen you before, you're new. You say, yes, I welcome you. I don't say a thing. I go to the back. I get a sample of the crawfish gumbo. I get a sample of the chicken gumbo. And I get a sample of my, of my dad's clam chowder. And I bring it out and people can't believe it. But I know when they taste it, ah, I got them. I got them. I confess, first time I had your clam chowder, it was a sample. That's right. Have you heard, this might be off the beaten track. Are yeah. you familiar with what used to be Noah's Ark? Yeah, well, everybody here, everybody here says to me, the last time when I first started, uh, I, 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 I think I remember just before they tore it down when I was here, uh, because, because over off the Fifth Street exit over there in, in uh, St. Charles. Uh, but I have a lot of people say, I haven't had clam chowder this good says Noah's Ark, and I believe this might be better. So I said, okay, well, good, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> so, yeah. well, that's the reason bringing it up. Apparently, they <laughs> were the first restaurant, it was the first restaurant, who brought clam chowder to the masses. And I'll tell people, and again, Harry, I apologize, it's been a year or so, but what is the ingredient in your clam chowder which is unique to how you do it? Wow. I, 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 I don't know if it's necessarily uh, an ingredient as the way we do it. The first thing is that a lot of people, when they do clam chowder, uh, they'll put in milk. We tell people our clam chowder is very rich. Uh, we use, uh, you know, we, we use heavy cream. And the second part is the fact that we cook everything separate. We use a fresh, a lot of people think that when they hear clam, they think fishy taste or fishy. You know. We use a fresh clam. The fresh clam, you know, is, uh, has a higher quality. It has no grit. And then I think the rest of it is just how we put it together. Maybe the secret ingredient is don't use milk. Use heavy cream, which is going to make it rich, okay, but it's going to make it so good. When I bring up Gulf Shores to people who've been there less than 10 times, shame on them, they always bring up the gator. Mm -hmm. Before COVID, we're talking about 300 pounds of gator. What are we talking now? Oh my God! Between uh, between that and and uh, and the restaurant over here in uh, Edwardsville, maybe about three fifty. I mean, wow. we sell a ton, maybe we sell a ton of gator, a ton of it. You're in St. Louis. How you getting your fish? Oh man, we get we get it. Uh, well, we have a great partner in. Uh, we have a really great partner in uh, in Cisco. I mean, they do some things for us, but a lot of stuff we have just shipped up. You know, we we get it straight up. Our gator uh, either comes from the gator farms in Louisiana. Or we, as I said before, we have a great relationship with Cisco. Uh, they sort of, you know, they're a big company and this little small restaurant like us. But I tell you what, they do a really, really good job in making us feel that we are every bit as important as some of their larger accounts. Explain to me what double boogie advertising is. Oh, double boogie advertising. Um, double boogie advertising is... <laughs> I hate to say this, but in most cases, it's print advertising. Uh, because now in print advertising, uh, in print advertising, you have to pay for that because people don't, papers are not free anymore. You have to pay for, I mean, papers are free. I'm sorry. They, they give the papers to the people free. Uh, and then 
I have to pay for the paper and I have to do some kind of a discount or whatever to get people to come in. So I have to pay for the ad. And the only reason people look for the ad is for a discount. So that's double bogey advertising. You're paying twice, you know, to get there. And, you know, if you know golf, no one wins uh, in, in with shooting double bogey. Well, I think that in the restaurant business, you have to look at how you're, how you uh, how you're running your business and that anything that you're paying twice to get a single hit is not good. So that's what I call double bogey advertising. <laughs> and Harry, I'm a big fan of advertising. If you know what your expectations should be, I think television, print, social, right. if you know what you're getting right. into, it can work. I think you and I both have something in common. I'm not a fan of Groupon. Right. No, I, I got to tell you what, I, I think the, uh, I think that the biggest disservice, you know, when you start talking about no restaurant, and I'm sorry, no restaurant can afford Groupon. They just can't. I mean, maybe you do it until you, till you, till you get people in to sample what you have, uh, but you just cannot. There's no way that a restaurant can survive with a 50% discount and having people come in to do that. I think that, but the reason that Groupon exists, I think is because it's, it's laziness. It's laziness. No one wants to find out a different way of going to do that. And I got to tell you, you know, between social media, podcasts, and so forth, I'm telling you, there's a better way. You can't, no restaurant can afford to give away that kind of, give away that kind of, uh, that kind of money. They just can't do it. So I've never, I've never, I've never done it. So as we get ready to wrap this thing up, maybe head on to a St. Louis 7. Harry, how long you been married? Ooh, mine up. See my son. Fifteen years. How'd you propose? Man, you know I was. Uh, <laughs> man, you're taking me back now. Uh, when I was in, uh, one of the things I used to do, I used to do some classes. I used to go and teach classes on marketing and uh, understanding marketing, and also uh, on winning. Uh, I used to do some speeches too. But there was this young lady that was there at one of my classes, uh, and uh, and we ended up talking, and we ended up. Uh, seeing each other and, and then we ended up and we ended up getting married <laughs> that's it how old were you when you had your son oh man you know, listen i'm 66 my first son is the king is 14 and i and i can tell you this I, and my mother teaches me uh, teases me all the time when i'm talking to her because i you know you always get to complain to your mother and my mother says well old people shouldn't have babies i said okay mom i got it so that that's it. My takeaway from that is that having my first son at that, uh, you know, he, he'll be 14, and you know, and I've got I'm 65, at 51, 52 years old. That's kind of old to be having, you know, having a, a kid. But I got to tell you, he has made me so young. I'm I, I coach him in baseball. I, I I'm at all these things. He's such a big guy, and uh, I I see so much in him. I see so much of me in him. It's kind of fantastic. But I can also see why the kids love the grandparents more grandparents and I'm at the age of a grandparent just have so much more patience he, he can do nothing to get on my nerve okay it's like he's golden so uh so yeah so Harrison and I named him that too because he was my first son uh, we named him Harrison which is if you break it up Harry's son so that's my first son that's the love of my life and I ha he has a sister by the way that's 40 and 41 so there you go <laughs> So when your 93, 94-year-old mother tells you that you're too old, just kind of pump the brakes a little bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She says, i tell you one thing. She says, you know, old people shouldn't have babies. I said, okay, Mom, I got you. Thanks. Thanks for that. 
All right. So my last question for this, and it, it's kind of out of nowhere, but I'm just curious. You've been doing this for a while. You've got a very unique position in the St. Louis community. African-American restaurants, especially west of 270 and Olive, there's just not a lot of them. Is there something going on I'm not aware of, or is it just in time it'll change? Well, that, that's a very tough question because I've asked myself that uh, uh, when I first came here, because uh, I didn't know anything, and I, the restaurant in Creve Corps, I would have uh, some of my African-American clients come in and say, how did you get in Creve Corps? How did you manage to get this space in Creve Corps? Which made me think, I said, well, I don't know. We just, you know, we had a company get it and we just went through the, 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 the right kind of protocol and so forth. And they go, wow. I have a fundamental belief. I, I believe that at the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing when they dine. They want to dine in a safe environment. They want to have the quality of the food to meet their expectations, okay? And they want to have the quality of the total dining experience to be exceptional. Um, I can't, you know, I don't know, but I will tell you this is that there's quite a bit of business that goes into the rent uh, where I'm located is very expensive. I mean, I mean, is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it, but it's very expensive and you really have to know how to, you really have to know the business side of it and so forth. But I can't say, I don't know if it's something that hasn't died, that, you know, that, uh, that is still alive in St. Louis that makes people think they can't go their business there. And, and, and I've had it both ways. I mean, I've had some people <laughs> who give me, maybe ask the question a little bit too many times, is this your restaurant? Yes, this is, this is your restaurant my restaurant so you're the owner you don't you don't have a partner you're not a part of a franchise no i created the concept and so forth and they seem to be a bit surprised at that a lot of the white customers uh seem to be a bit surprised by that but listen at this point my patience is like is inevitable i mean maybe uh, 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 to ask me that question one more time in the conversation i might have turned a little bit nasty but i can't answer that but it's a it's a it's a lot of opportunity everywhere and um, it's a difficult question. I think that it would, I think it would be very good uh, because I believe this. I believe that the basis for a lot of what's wrong with this country is ignorance. And that is that people haven't had a chance to see. So they go by hearsay. Um, I had a, one of the uh, city councilmen for Creve Corps said to me, listen, we owe you, a, you know, we really owe you a debt of gratitude because you've brought more people together of different cultures than we ever seen. Uh, I live, I was in and out of India, the country India for quite a bit. Uh, I was all over the place and so forth. So I, uh, I love my Indian customers. I love my Chinese customers who come and so forth. I love my African American customers. And so when you have an opportunity, and by the way, in the restaurant, you know, we are more bistro than anything else. Our tables are like 24, maybe 22 to 24 inches apart, the tables are. So by and large, when you're sitting there and you're eating, uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to experience it. The person next to you is probably going to either strike up a conversation or whatever. And I think that is so key because I think that people are saying, you know what? Wow, they are not what I've heard they are. Oh, wow, the Chinese is not what I see they are. And I think that people are learning and I think that it, it would be so good. And that's, that's the power of diversity. It'd be so good for every community to invite every different kind of restaurant that they can and they support it 
because in the end, they're going to have a better citizen. They're going to have a citizen uh, that's not going to be ignorant. They're going to have a citizen that is experiencing and know that everything they heard doesn't apply to everyone. I think the age of speeding things up has cost us. Everybody wants to understand everybody, everything about everyone right now. And so now you're slowed down. You set up a conversation. You go, wow, they do have kids. They do worry about the same thing I worry about. Oh, wow, they have it. So I think that uh, that kind of diversity in restaurant dining and for the various city, uh, Creekcore and the other cities should be a lot more aggressive in, in inviting every kind of culture to come in and, and to win. Uh, because I think that when they win, the city wins. There's some age and wisdom behind that answer. <laughs> yeah. Go to Gulf Shores. The menu's fantastic. Got to pick one thing. What do you pick? Ooh. Gumbo. Gumbo. <laughs> Start with the gumbo. Start with the gumbo or, or, or the clam chowder. Start there. And then everything. Or the key lime pie. Oh, or the grandmother's key lime <laughs> pie. Just listen. Just listen. Just come many times and then you'll just sample the menu. Well, you know, uh, one last thing I'll tell you that the guy says that, you know what? I can tell you weren't in the restaurant business. You knew nothing about it. And I says, why is that? It's because no restaurant owner in his, in his right mind would ever have a menu this big. <laughs> and I've learned over time he's right. We have a huge menu. We have a huge menu. It's the only way we can put it. But we have an outstanding kitchen staff. And I tell you what, they do it right. Harry had a good time. Hope you did too. I did, man. I did. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. You, you are very, very good at it. And, uh, and I'm glad that I decided to do it. I'm sorry you had to run me down the way you did to get it, but I got to tell you what, man, this is this is good stuff. Dave. I hope that uh, I hope it I hope it works for you. I hope it's good for you because you seem like you have a passion for it. I really appreciate the time. You're a part of it. Let's see what happens. All right, man. All right. Maze le bon temps Let the good times roll. And another one for the books. Nice compliment at the end there from Harry when we are wrapping up. Appreciate that. We're having fun here at Overtime, and for all you overtimers out there, let's keep this thing growing. Thursday's guest is still undecided. We've got conversations already done with Demetrius Johnson, the Steamers, and others, but I'm working on something that may need to go up quick. I'll let you know on Twitter, hey, if you don't follow me on Twitter, that handle is at OT with Oliver. So until Thursday, as we do, thanks for your time, this time, till next time, so long.